Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenicast. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. This week, we have an amazing interview for you with the Reverend Dr. Miguel de la Torre. And aside from the amazing content that you're about to hear in this interview that Rajiv conducted, it was recorded Earlier this year, before the pandemic, before the murder of George Floyd, before all the Black Lives Matter protests that happened this year, and it is eerily relevant to where we are in this situation, especially given the last two conversations that we've had on the show about white supremacy in evangelicalism and then also progressive Christianity. This is an amazing interview. We hope that you enjoy it. We hope that you go and you check out the work of the Reverend Dr. Miguel de la Torre. And the show notes for this episode are irenicast.com slash 172. And we'll have a complete list of all the ways that you can like, follow, and find all the work that de la Torre is involved in currently. And just as a final reminder on the top, we will continue the conversation that you're about to hear on Facebook and YouTube live on Monday, August 10th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. However, we are no longer putting that audio on the podcast feed. So if you would like to listen to that continuing conversation where the rest of the hosts get a chance to talk about this particular episode, you can always catch the archives of that on Facebook or on YouTube. Don't forget the show notes for this episode, all of the links and everything, irenicast.com slash 172. And without any further ado, here is this week's interview with... Uh, the Reverend Dr. Miguel de la Torre. Well, friends, very excited to have a, a special guest, somebody who I've admired from a distance and have been changed as a result of his work and example. The Reverend Dr. Miguel de la Torre. He's currently the professor of social ethics and Latinx studies at the Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. Dr. De La Torre is a recognized international Fulbright scholar who's taught courses globally. He's an advocate for the ethics of peace and has expertise on the intersections of race, class, gender, and sexuality. He's written a long list of books, edited, contributed, and, and articles as well. We will put a link to his website, drmigueldelatore.com, in our show notes. So you can go there and get access to all of his good work and hopefully follow him on social media. Reverend Dr. Delatore, welcome to Irenicast. So glad to be with you. You, sir, in a single body are a powerful confluence of people, places, and experiences. I am really interested in, in hearing more about your early history. Well, um, I am what people today, I used to be what people today call an illegal alien, uh, which, as you know, the term itself is, is somewhat racist. I came to this country when I was just a couple of months old. Um, my father left Cuba during the, um, the revolution of 1959, and we came penniless to the United States, where we lived in Hell's Kitchen. Uh, back in when Hell's Kitchen was really Hell's Kitchen and not the trendy neighborhood it is today, tenement building only had one bathroom per floor. Um, so I grew up in poverty in the United States, and I grew with that sense of knowing I never belonged here. I was the first Latino to go to the elementary school I went to, Blessed Sacrament. 
my parents sent me to a good Catholic school. We were Catholics. But at night, we would also practice Santeria, which is an Afro-Cuban religion. And like many people of the Caribbean, there's a hybridity to our spirituality where we could belong to more than one faith tradition at the same time and really see no conflict. Um, I became a Southern Baptist for very deep theological reasons. Uh, the young woman I wanted to go out with would only go out with me if I went to church with her on Sunday and she happened to be a Southern Baptist. So that's how that worked out. Um, but basically, yeah, um, you know, grew up in poverty, grew up um, as a, a undocumented immigrant until I was about 11 years old. Um, then I became a U.S. citizen. And, 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 and all my life, I've always felt like I really never belong here. Well, that, that resonates so deeply, you know, that, that never quite belonging. You know, where, where do you fit in? And, and that, that's a tough thing to explain. Yeah, and to make matters worse, um, when I finally went back to Cuba some 45 years after the fact that we left, I was made aware I don't belong there either. So, so you live in this in-between space of having no place really to call home. And, and how do you create your identity, your theology, your worldview from a space that has no roots? Right. Right. Yeah, it's, it's so complicated. And one of the things that I find difficult sometimes when I talk with trusted friends about this who don't understand, they feel hurt. They're like, well, you know, we love you. Don't you feel like you belong with us? And it's a hard thing to say, well, sort of. <laughs> so I, I, that resonates deeply. One of the things you shared that I really wanted to, to, to touch on, the idea of hybridity when it comes to religious thought and having family history and personal history with Santeria, most of our listeners know Santeria because of the Sublime song, and that's that may be it. Say say a little bit more of how that has has been with you or not been with you over time. Well, of course. Um, first of all, the hybridity. A Eurocentric way of understanding religion is that you're either Catholic or you're Protestant. You're either Muslim or you're Hindu. Um, you're, you know, either one thing or the other, even within Protestantism, you're either a Presbyterian or a Methodist. You can't really be both. But for those of us who come from the Caribbean, we have learned how to belong to different faith communities, even contradictory communities, and yet live on the tension of those contradictions. So it's not that I'm confused or that I don't really know my theology. It's, it's more of a fact that um, I was a Catholic pretty much for the majority of my life. How can that not have not shaped me? I'm still a Catholic. I, I, you know, I, in my writings, I still look at the encyclicals and I still look at church teachings. As I mentioned, um, I was a Santeria in Santeria. And, and again, majorly influenced my life. A lot of the work that I do is with trickster images. And part of it is because in Santeria, my spiritual head happens to be Elegua, which is the African trickster or the Yoruba trickster. So that has not only influenced my life, but influenced my theology and has influenced how I do my, um, my, my, my social ethics. And like I said, I'm a Southern Baptist, so there's a certain evangelical zeal to me in preaching liberation, in preaching good news to the poor, in, 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 in raising the consciousness that um, we are born to live life, uh, a fruitful life, here in the here and now, not just in some 
here and after. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. Another intersection between us too, the I've talked to and have explored trying to find out my own family's pre-Christian identity. And it's been a challenge because where Christian is is where the story often begins and ends. And but learning about Hinduism and and in southern India predating the Vedic traditions, uh, having having those roots and wanting to be connected, but being told repeatedly, you can't. You got to choose. I wrote an article a while back called "I'm a um, I'm a Roman Catholic Southern Baptist Sunday or Deal with It." Right. And basically, what I'm saying is that's awesome. You know, all these traditions form my identity, and I'm not going to reject any part of my identity. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Um, in our in our current political climate in the United States, where in, in the aftermath of an impeachment of a sitting president, there is currently a Senate trial underway. And you did a talk called Confronting Opponents a couple of years ago that I've listened to repeatedly because I think there's some real gems there. And I'm wondering if you could offer people, and, and our listeners tend to be liberal, progressive folk for the most part, some more centrist, but how how would you advise, mentor us to be good at confronting our opponents? Well, I'm going to take a leap of faith and assume that probably a lot of your listeners are probably Euro-Americans or white. I think that's a very safe assumption. One of the problems that I find with white liberals, for example, is that they are horrified if anyone even hints that they may be racist. And I would argue that the best way to have conversation to confront opponents is to embrace their racism. And and let me explain what I mean. Let me take racism off the table for a second. I am a sexist. And I embrace that. How can I not be a sexist in this culture? not just the Euro-American culture, but the Hispanic culture. I was raised in a sexist environment. I have lived with male privilege all my life. Even when I march with women and say, go sisters, and I wear the pink hat, which is a very white symbol, by the way, but even if I wear that pink hat and I'm, and, and I'm, and, and I'm, and I'm, you know, you know, equal parent stuff, the culture and the system is sexist for me. Thus, I am complicit with sexism every single day of my life. Now, we could say I'm a recovering sexist. I'm trying not to be sexist. And many, most days I succeed. A lot of times I fail because it's easier to keep quiet than to lose my male privilege. So this is my struggle. And I recognize that struggle. It's not something that I'm ashamed of. It's not something that I'm embarrassed of. It's just what it is. I'm trying to be a better person. And I, and, and, and I, and I always try to keep my sexism in check. So when I fall off the wagon and someone holds me accountable of my sexism, 
my first response was not to defend myself or not to begin with, do you know how many marches I march with for women? And do you know how many times I've helped women? You know, no, that, that may be true, but at this moment, I'm allowing my complicity with sexism to get the better part of me. And the correct response is, oh, damn, I, I, I screwed up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. So let's, Richard, let's go back to where I began, racism. Every one of your right listeners is a racist. How can he not be? Growing up in this culture, in this society. So embrace that and let's work on becoming recovering racists. Mm-hmm. And, and just to be fair, your listeners cannot see me, but I'm a very light-skinned Latino. Mm-hmm. So I am also complicit with racist structures because the fact that I'm like skin opened up opportunities for me to get my PhDs, PhD as opposed to darker skin Latinos, which there are very few dark skin Latino religion PhD professors. So again, I, you know, I'm also complicit with this. And I think the sooner we embrace this and the sooner we realize our sin, our complicity with it, the sooner we can move to have some meaningful conversation. Yeah, that's powerful. That's powerful. And, and, and a, another angle on that is also being male, coming from a male-dominant misogynist society, being brought up to be the head of everything. But having dark skin gives me a strange realization about what it is to be hated for no good reason and given credit for no good reason. And here's an interesting twist to this. You're male. Yep. So therefore, white women honestly could say, well, obviously you're a male, therefore you're sexist. And yeah, okay, we agree. But here's where I think white women are not in touch with their own biases. Many times, I find in my community, there was this thing that somehow the sexism of men of color is somehow more brutal, more horrific than the sexism of white men. And, and I find this, you know, even with something as simple as every time white people talk about, oh, that person's so machista, or there's such a, you know, so, so, so much machismo. Machismo is a Spanish word. Mm-hmm. There were good English words for sexism, right. i.e. sexism. Right. <laughs> um, but by using machismo, it somehow is a worse form of sexism. Now, don't get me wrong. All sexism is horrific. No one ethnic group has a monopoly on doing it better or worse. Mm-hmm. Now, they all may be different, but they're all still damaging. And somehow I find that many times white women have a savior complex to save women of color from men of color. And number one, I think women of color could handle themselves quite well. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. My Latina sisters who hold me in line much better than white women Mm -hmm. Um, and, and somewhat disempowering for white women to force women of color to their white form of feminism. 
when women of color have their own understanding of what feminism is. And secondly, white men, sexism is as horrific as the sexism of men of color. So, so I want to also bring that dynamic into this conversation of being a man and a man of color. Yeah. And in, in some ways, in the American context, for sure, white male sexism, I think, has broader ramifications because white men hold most of the power. And so that institutionalized sexism is a bigger issue. One of the things that you talk about, which is uh, really fascinating and complicated, because in the activist community, anybody who's trying to make the world a better place for themselves and for other people use hope as a central rallying cry. And and you talk about hope as a Eurocentric concept and want to bring a different understanding around that. Please let's take some time on on this one, because this is this is deep. So there's several ways to approach this. So I'll begin very basically why I say hope is a middle class white concept. I say that because in this country, no matter how bad things are, there's always hope of being able to get a job, of finding food, of getting help. If you're a child soldier in Africa, if you are a young woman in the sex, uh, being trafficked in sex in Asia, if you are um, an individual living in the neighborhood controlled by the drug cartel in Central America. Or if you're just poor, living in a, um, in a, in a, in a um, squatter village, there really is no hope for you. Chances are you're going to die in that misery. And I want to be very clear about this. Um, I learned this when I took a group of students to Cuernavaca, Mexico, and we took them to a squatter village. And at the end, we were debriefing, and one of my white female students said something like, you know, I know it's horrible, but when I looked at the little girl, I saw the hope in her eyes. And my reaction was, I'm not sure what you saw in her eyes, but in another five years, she's going to be turning tricks to put food on the table. There is no hope for her. She will continue living in this shanty town. She will marry young or be prostituted young. She will have children. She will die young, and the children will continue living in the shantytown. The poor are going to continue getting poor. There is no hope for her, economic, political hope. There isn't. But by her embracing hope, she no longer had to deal with that situation because it would take care of itself. God would take care of it. We have hope in the future, therefore, I don't have to worry about it. So, so for that reason, I say it's a privilege. It's a middle-class, first-world privilege because no matter how poor you are in the United States, you could always try to figure something out. Something could be done. In most of the two-third world, the vast majority of the global South, there are no agencies. There is nothing to help you. That's one aspect. The second aspect. When I went to Auschwitz, there was a sign over the gate that said, work will set you free. That was a hope that was instilled as, I walk, as, as one would walk through those gates. That maybe I could survive this. If I keep my head down, if I don't make waves, if I don't make eye contact, 
maybe I'll survive this. The reality is the vast majority of people who walked through those gates ended up being incinerated. Hope becomes a way of controlling the oppressed. As long as you give the oppressed hope, then they may not rebel. But if I have nothing to lose, if I come to the realization that it is hopeless, I'm going to die anyway, and I have nothing to lose, that's when I become the most dangerous because that's when I become the most revolutionary. And in this world where I'm trying to realizing that it is hopeless and we have nothing to lose. And now on a more theological, philosophical bent. Obviously, the book I wrote, Embracing Hopelessness, is a response to Yogan uh, Mutman's book, um, The Theology of Hope. For Mutman, as you know, the reason we have hope is because God keeps God's promises. At the end of history, I could look back at history and say, oh, I see how God kept God's promises all along. Unfortunately, I think I drank the postmodern Kool-Aid because I'm not quite sure that something like history actually exists. I really believe any one of us, given the opportunity to pick certain moments of time and string them together, create a history that justify whatever we want to do today. So history is whatever the historian says history is. And in the reciting of that narrative, or too often the voices of the marginalized are never part of it. Secondly, besides the fact that I don't think there's such a thing as history, I'm not quite sure God always keeps God's promises. I mean, God promised the Jews that he would never abandon them. And yet, that's what goes on with the Holocaust. There's this beautiful book written by, um, called uh, God on Trial, by the Nobel Peace winner, um, the name escapes me right now, I can't believe it, Russell, in where he basically said, he put, you know, <clears throat> he talks about an event that actually happened in where in Auschwitz, uh, a group of Jewish rabbis put God on trial for not keeping, for breaking covenant with the Jews. And at the end, they find God guilty. That resonates with me. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what do you do with a God who's guilty of not keeping God's promises? So that's part of also what's motivating me. So, so that's the you know, there's the, um, the practical realization that there's a hopelessness that the, the poor do embrace. There's the praxis orientation that, you know, embracing hopelessness could lead us to radical action. And then there's the philosophical, theological aspect to it. Obviously, in the book, I spend hundreds of pages <laughs> doing all this in a systematic way. But that's pretty much the, the main points of why I'm embracing hopelessness. Yeah, and it, I think the sentiment is really beautiful, but I've, I've had the opportunity to sit with it 
for a little while. It took me some time because it's, I had a, a pretty emotional response. It's like there was an intellectual, oh, shit, he's right. But then there was an emotional, well, now what? You know, there, there was like, the, uh, it, it created a, an emotional vacuum. And, and along those lines, I, I'd, I'd like you to speak to the folks who are thinking about that image of looking into the child soldier's eyes or the young girl who's living in, in abject poverty who's going to be, whose body's going to be, both of their bodies are, are being used as raw materials and are going to very likely, almost certainly die in those circumstances. So the emotional toll that that takes, both on the people living those lives and then those of us who, you know, grew up in a culture where we're all about hope and optimism and opportunity and bootstrap philosophies. How do you cope with that in the sense that, okay, this is real, but I shouldn't give up. So there's, I've got a bit of an agenda here. Well, let me put it this way. Embracing hopelessness allows me to cope with this a lot better than embracing hope. And let me, and let, let me explain what I mean by this. How long do social workers usually last? Not very long. Now, of course, there's exceptions, but usually what I've discovered is that many people who go into social work, who go into activism, who go into changing the world, burn out very quickly because they want to change the world. They, they, they know they could do it. They have hope it could be done. You know, my mind could conceive it. My heart believes it. I could achieve it. All this great stuff. And then after a few years, not only does things not change, but they get worse. And then they're like, now what? I've done everything I can. Nothing has changed. I'll start selling real estate instead. And, and they move out of it. And people in activism and any type of social work burn this out at a very, very, very high rate. I've been working with these issues of immigration, of poverty for decades. I'm not burned out because I realize it never depends on me. I'm not the savior of the world. Everything I do probably is not going to work. So the question is, why do I then do it? Why bother? Why don't I just watch TV? Or watch right. and, and here's the answer. Very simple. I do what I do. I am active in bringing about social justice, even though I know I'm going to fail. I do that because it defines not only my identity as a human, but my faith as a Christian. The results is not what defines who I am. The action of doing is what defines who I am. I have no other choice. Trust me, many a times I've said to myself, you know, I could write a book about King Solomon's left ear and spend years in the library doing all this fun research and forget about all this other stuff. I thought, nothing's going to change. Why bother? my life will be so much more carefree. But I will not be the person I am. I would not be able to profess the faith I have and my ability to claim humanity would be somewhat damaged. So in a, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't do this for some rubies and a crown and some hereafter. 
I mean, I mean, great heaven. Yeah, I, I believe in it. I, I already got my mansion, you know, I, all that stuff. But even if I'm wrong and there is no heaven, even if this is all there is, so what? I still will do what I do, not because of some reward. I do what I do because it defines me. Yeah. And it is the question your, your listeners really need to ask. Do you fight for justice because you think you're going to win? Or do you fight for justice because you have no other choice but to fight for justice? See, when you think you're going to win, everybody joins the bandwagon. You know, so what? Do you fight for justice when you know you're going to lose? I do what I do because it defines me. That's the life motto right there. You know, it, it really is. It's tough to distill some of these things down, but there's, there's, there's a lot there. And thank you for, for taking us through that pretty complicated arc of thought and, and giving us something to, to hang on to. And I, I personally recommend the book. Uh, we'll, we'll be putting stuff out there in, in the show notes as well. In your work around nonviolence, you also are very open about, like you have been about being sexist, your, your baggage, like we all have, have baggage. In, in relationship to nonviolence, you um, have cited in the past and maybe numerous times Cesar Chavez's words, I am not a nonviolent man. I am a violent man trying to be nonviolent. Talk about that relationship in, in your work, in, in, in that arena. Being the only Latino at the time in Jackson Heights, that's how old I am. Living at the time, it was an Irish and Italian neighborhood. And having the different groups take turns beating me up after school on a regular basis. Growing in a, up in a very violent environment where nonviolence is a great idea, but it doesn't work in the schoolyards when you live in, in poor neighborhoods. This is a very difficult concept for me. I am a very violent man. You get in my face and my, you know, I'm an old New Yorker. I mean, I just want to shove right back. I don't, you know. But how do I embrace nonviolence while I find violence sometimes to be so useful? But though it is useful, here's the problem. It changes you as a person. One of my favorite quotes, uh, I think, of the Hebrew Bible is when um, King David wants to build a temple for God, and God says, no, you can't because you have fought too many wars. Fighting changes you. Killing changes you. I wish that I was not in all the violent fights I was in growing up, because it has negatively impacted my life. There's no question about that. So I see the importance of nonviolence, even to the point of it is better to be killed than to kill. But I confess to you, while it is easy for me to say that from a safe distance, you touch the hair of one of my children, and I'll rip your heart out in Christian love. <laughs> so I know I will fail. Mm -hmm. You know, and so, so I live in that tension. 
of trying, you know, and I think that's, this is why I love this quote by Sister Chavez so much. I am a violent man trying to be nonviolent. And I pray for grace that I succeed, knowing that I probably might not. But also knowing that when I fall short, there is grace there. Mm-hmm. This may seem kind of ridiculous, but you'll, I think you'll appreciate it. In your body of work and the impact that it's, that it's had on me and, and many others, this, this single thing has been the most meaningful um, for me because I, I related to that sentiment so quickly and deeply because you know I've spent a lot of time in anguish over that and self-loathing around being violent, having like violence in me. And then to actually not have the acts of violence validated by your thoughts, but the recognition that that's there and it doesn't have to consume you or control you. And you don't have to give in to that. But recognizing that there there may come a tipping point. And also recognizing that when the tipping point comes and you move into it, there's no turning back. Uh, and there's there's a, a a permanent change and and I think you know given the times we live in and given some of the things that that I I fear most I I can see the tipping point as as a possibility more now than I ever have in my life. I would confess to you, as a la- occupying a Latino body, I am more afraid today than I was back in the 1960s. I am more afraid for my safety than I ever was living in New York in the slums back in the 60s. When I hear the rhetoric that if the election doesn't go my way, I'm buying guns, that scares me. And it scares me because the one thing we know in every society where there has been a type of fascist takeover, and I'm not saying that that's going to happen here, but when you have that kind of rhetoric, is usually the first to be targeted are the intellectuals. I was in Krakow, and I went to the factory that Shidna had, and they had an exhibition of how the Nazis took over Poland. And I always assume, well, the first thing they did was they rounded up the Jews. And I was shocked to find out that the first thing they did was they round up the intellectuals. That hit me like nothing else. Now, I'm not trying to say, oh, look at me, poor me, you know, I'm, I'm in danger, you know, so. but in the last year, in my speaking tours, when I go speaking in places, there was a couple of times where they had to hire armed guards because there was chatter about, you know, violence towards me. I've never had that happen before until last year. So something's going on in this country that is scary for those of us of color. Yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, boy, that's I mean that's awful, and I'm I'm so deeply sorry, and and hurt that that is going on. And in addition to people of color, I mean these are the kinds of things that have been happening to women 
for for you know many years in many contexts but you know in the aftermath of the election of Trump I was still working in the nonprofit arena working at an anti-poverty agency in the foothills of California the Sacramento area gold rush country highway 49 was my commute the two lane rural highway pretty much all the counties that I I worked in are Trump country the election happens a couple of confederate flags pop up I get nervous for the first time since I can remember. I grew up back east and was coached, thankfully taken in and coached by African-American families of my friends at school who, when we drove to Florida, would tell us where we should stop and where we shouldn't stop. And then I got pulled over. I was on my way home. The lights came on. I have not been that afraid in memory. And rural road... Nobody else was out there. It was dark, literally, you know, just afraid for my physical safety. And and I haven't been that afraid since that event. Fortunately, the officer was the kind of officer you hope is in, in every role. Very polite. Had, you know, my sticker was expired. I had recently moved. So explained, oh, I, they must have sent it to the old address. It was very pleasant. He said, yeah, well... It'll probably resolve itself, but go into the DMV and get get your own sticker. Apologize for inconveniencing you. So a real relief, but the climate is such that to to be passive, to be silent, both no no matter what place in our society that you hold, uh, there there's no room for silence anymore. We need allies to stand up and be vocal. Yeah, I it's 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 hard to even speak of because I don't. As a male, I wasn't socialized to be afraid of anything. Same here. I mean, it was. I, I was socialized to throw the first punch before anybody throws it at you. You know, to, to you know. But but we, we live in a very different time now. Um, but to your point, you know, I, I find myself at meetings many times, faculty meetings among intellectuals, and then somebody says something which is obviously racist and, 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 and problematic. And none of my white colleagues says anything. I'm the one that has to say something. And quite frankly, I am tired of saying these things. It's time for our white colleagues to be the ones holding their the 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 the, the kin folks mm-hmm. responsible for what they say. Mm-hmm. When that begins to happen, we'll start moving forward. Yeah, but it's not happening. You know. Then what happens is because I'm always saying, "Now, now wait a minute, hold it. Did, did you hear what you said?" Um, then I become the angry Latino. Yep. And maybe some of you listeners will say, "Why is he so angry?" Um, I'm not angry. Um, first of all, if I was, I have every right to be after living 60 years dealing with, rape, with, 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 with ethnic discrimination. But I'm not angry. I have pity for many of these folks. But if I could be labeled as angry, then everything I say could be dismissed. Right. And anything right. I say cannot be, is not validated because after all, I'm angry. And, and I guess going back to my original point, what bothers me is that after meetings, a lot of these white colleagues come up to me. Oh, this was terrible what so-and-so said. I just couldn't believe they said that. I'm so glad you said something. I feel like saying, well, why didn't you? Right. 
if you were so bothered by it also. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and when it does happen, I've had a couple of instances where, in in my case, a a white friend or colleague speaks up on behalf of some racist nonsense. And it's like the it's the sweetest thing. You know, it just feels like, OK, it's one of those, you know, the sky opens up moments because <laughs> they're they're rare. And in turn, you know, one of the things that I, I um, work on quite a bit are are. Uh, is is trying to understand how masculinity can evolve. And one of the things we, you know, men get called on a lot, people, men that identify as feminists, is to be the same kind of ally to to women in those spaces and to be able to, to stand up. And, and along those lines, you're talking about our formations a bit. How do you see and envision the the evolution, the, the not not see like it's it's existing trajectory but how does masculinity need to evolve to be a better masculinity oh man using christian language for a moment i feel i have to crucify my sexism so i could become a new creature because it is so much a part of me the Christian concept of turning away from sin and crucifying your sin and becoming a new person, that's useful language, um, you know, especially for those who happen to be Christian, because that's really what it takes. I have to become a new person. I really have to shed this male way of seeing which is almost hopeless (laughs) yeah, because I'm so rooted in it. Mm -hmm. And I want to say, well, you know, I'm looking at the young, the young got it. Yay for them. You know, we're going to, you know, have a much better world in the future because the young people. But then I also remember I grew up in the sixties with hippies and make love in the park and don't trust anybody over 30. And we're going to change the world because we're into peace and love. And many of them now are Trumpites. So as much as I look to the youth as the future, maybe they might be the answer. I'm also very well aware that as they grow older and they step into the spaces that have been created for them, it's so easy to then adopt the same racist, sexist, homophobic attitudes of the previous generation. Yeah, I think that that's really powerful in that um I have two sons there in their 20s and their their middle 20s and they're they're incredible young men and they have learned how to be young men under a new set of rules, social rules. So I I think behavior has made some positive strides, but I think the internal constructs of who we are still remain and that concept of crucifixion in the Christian tradition where there is resurrection there is rebirth on the other side of that yeah i've never thought about applying applying that specifically but that's that's some powerful imagery it may be what it takes and then there's a risk that you're not going to get up right because so much of you is infused with it if you go down hoping you might come up it it may not happen it may not happen resurrection 
may not occur for some of us until maybe another life. <laughs> right. <laughs> because it's so infused. But you mentioned right. your two young sons. And, 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 and I think one of the, you know, that, that they learn how to operate under a new set of rules <laughs> and a way of being, and that's important. But I think without the crucifixion of one's sins of racism and classism and sexism and all that stuff, what happens is what we saw happen with the election of Trump. We all learn political correctness. Or you don't say the N-word in public or, you know, you, you, prefer, you, know, you don't call her sweetie, you call her miss, or you, you don't even use miss because that implies sexuality, so you just use they or, you know. We, we learn all the right political correct language. And what Trump was able to do is say, we don't have to do that anymore. And the same people who were politically correct before now say, why bother? I'm just going to call a spade a spade, you know, as right. problematic as that phrase is, but <laughs> right. exactly what they're doing. I don't have to be politically correct anymore. You know, so sweetie, smile a little bit more, you know, because I could say that now because Trump has done a lot worse by grabbing women by their, <clears throat> you know what? So part of that is if all we do is learn the right language, if all we do is learn political correctness, if all we do is learn, you know, how not to appear racist or sexism, and we never do that crucifying of ourselves and, and creating a new creature, it's only a matter of time before we revert back to our, our nature. I agree. There, there's a lot there. Well, friends, we're going to conclude this conversation with the Reverend Dr. Miguel De La Torre. He has a lot to offer. Please check out his website, his many, many books. And any closing thought of wisdom, Miguel, before we transition to, to playing this game? I do. There's one thing we didn't talk about. When I talk about, um, when we talked about hopelessness, I do have a response to hopelessness. So, so what do we do? And I talk about an ethics para joder. For your listeners who don't know Spanish, joder is a word that is equivalent to a certain four-letter word that begins with F and ends with K. Um, I only curse in Spanish, not in English. And what I'm, asked, what I'm saying by that is, when neoliberalism has won, when racism and sexism are the norm, when it's hopeless and you're going to lose anyway, the ethical thing to do is to screw with the system. Because if you hit the system head on and fight, you will be decimated. So what oppressed communities over the ages have done is play and screw with the system so as to move ahead and survive. It's a survival ethics. It's a trickster, it's a trickster ethics. And this trickster ethics is what I believe is, is, is the answer to the hopelessness that I'm trying to talk about. Trickster ethics. 
Hmm? Trickster ethics. Trickster ethics, absolutely. You know, I mean, and, and it's part of the history. I mean, look at um, uh, at the black spiritual. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're singing in the field. I have shoes. You have shoes. All of God's children have some shoes. Not anybody going to heaven is going to have shoes. In other words, they don't have shoes. They're working in the fields. They're singing about one day having shoes. But those who are talking about going to heaven, they're not going to have shoes. The masters. So they have this trickster underlying double meaning going on. And all that the overseer can say is, oh, they're so happy. Look at them singing. But you have this trickster element to doing ethics. Yeah. And, I mean, so using spirituals is a great example because the, the messages were also encoded about where and when to go and how to go about getting needed supplies. Some of it was medicines. Some of it was meeting loved ones. Some of it was, um, here's the opportunity for freedom. So the question becomes, how do I ethically steal so people can eat? How do I ethically lie? so we can find out what the truth is. Ethics no longer becomes a simple right or wrong answer. It's more complex. Absolutely. Thank you for, for bringing us around. And anything else you want to, to leave us with as sort of a, 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 either a capstone thought or a, a teaser that leads us to some other work of yours? Well, um, I, I, I just published a book this year called Burying White Privilege, Resurrecting a Badass Christianity. Nice. These concepts. And it was so successful. It was, it was not an academic book. It was written to a general audience. That I'm now writing a follow-up, which is going to be called um, The Least of These, Implementing a Badass Christianity. Awesome. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is how do we do a badass Christianity? We'll, we'll have you back for that follow-up conversation. Definitely. I, I look forward to that. Are we ready to transition to this silly game? Of course. All right. So this game is called Over Under, and the rules of the game are pretty simple. I will throw out a name, a thing, uh, something, and first you respond and you just say overrated or underrated and why you think that. Ready? First item, Muhammad Ali. Underrated. I think his work as a Muslim and his ideas of Islam are many times ignored. And if we could spend some more time on his faith as a Muslim, um, there is much there that could help us as a society um, better understand um, Islam in America. I totally agree. Uh, he is so desperately underrated i and and the part of him that i pull out because i love i love music and one of the music genres i grew up with was hip-hop and he's he's a philosopher poet i mean if you actually listen to him he's entertaining his cadence is entertaining but you listen to the substance of what he's saying it's it's powerful and i think a lot of that gets missed underrated in, in possibly every way Okay, this one, this this one could pick a fight with a few people. Uh, progressive Christianity. Overrated. And I say that because all Christianity needs to be progressive. 
the fact that you're using the word progressive as an adjective says there's something radically wrong. Mm. I, I would say overrated as well. And as a part of progressive Christian communities, it, it's not a theological problem because I think that part is right. It is ever evolving. I mean, we're, we're shown that throughout the history of our faith. But uh, I would say overrated because of the incredible ineffectiveness when the dominant narrative is so antithetical to what uh, gospel-believing Christians, social justice, um, Sermon on the Mount Christians, as it were, that message just seems to be non-existent. So in that sense, I would say overrated as well. Having history in Cuba, I thought this would be an an interesting one because a lot of people don't know that jazz is a big part of Cuban culture and history. Jazz, overrated, underrated. I have to say underrated, um, or else my wife would kill me. <laughs> and, I, and I say this because she just dropped a, um, her jazz album. She's a, 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 a um, Latina jazz composer. Wow. It's classical Latina jazz. And she just dropped her album last year. She's writing her second album now. Um, what, what's her name and what's the name of the album? The name of the album is called Coño, C-O-N-Y-O, but with a swing. Coño is a word used in many Latinx cultures for a woman's vagina. And the reason she calls it that is because jazz composition is only men and women are locked out. And she's saying, I'm here, deal with it. Uh, he also is, has that spirit of, of, of fighting back. Um, but her music is all instrumental. She writes the music. Her band played it. Um, she goes under the name La Cocodrida, the female crocodile. Nice. Um, Spotify and, and, and iTunes and all that stuff. She's been, her music has been playing all over the world. So very oh, that's awesome. Well, obviously, if you say jazz, if I was to say overrated, I would have to find a new place to live. <laughs> Well, I, I agree with you for, for lots of different reasons, but I'm going to listen to the album and we'll probably agree as well. But it's, uh, yeah, it's, it is such an underrated art form. Really, most music that we listen to today are all children of jazz, and, and yet we don't, we don't know the, the history that, that well. Um, final one, and this is, this is a recurring theme with me, Avocado Toast. <laughs> Definitely overrated. I mean, I'm sorry. Um, I grew up in, I'm a Caribbean boy. Avocado was something I eat all the time. The idea of paying, whether $9.99 for some avocado and a piece of bread, only among a certain group of people. I mean, <laughs> I mean don't get me wrong. I, I like to make it. I eat it. But Yeah, I'm so with you. It, it is so ridiculously overrated. It's... uh. Yeah. <laughs> it's to me it's amazing that it's actually a thing. Yeah, I mean like I said, I eating avocado with all my meals was like what you do. Right. Right. And in California there's a is, there's a degree of that as well, but California is very guilty uh of perpetuating the avocado toast hoax. So there we have it. Well thank you very, very much, Miguel, for spending your time with us and 
look forward to staying in touch via your work and have you back. We're going to wait for that second book so we can learn how to be badass Christians. <laughs> and uh, you. It was a pleasure being with you today. Awesome. Thank you so much. Bye now. <laughs>